In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we acknowledge that we come into your presence today, to your holiness, your goodness, your love for us. Help us to hide nothing from you, to come as we are, total honesty, confidence, trust in your love. Grow in us this new maturity through the power of your healing in Jesus to make us whole, to integrate our thoughts, our feelings, our desires, all that's interior to us. We bring it to you in the depths of our heart as your children, your creatures. I ask your blessing on this time together and each of us. And Mary, please be with us and intercede for us. Amen. In the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So if you've been with us for the last three sessions, this is, in a way, a culmination, a sort of review of a lot of the information that I've shared so far, and then just kind of opening up to a path forward, uh, an encouragement to you that healing is God's will for you, and it's possible, and it's even happening now. But what would that look like for you personally? I'd like just kind of invite you to, to reflect on that in a very honest way and what might be some next steps. And then next time, the last one before the end of the semester, I won't be giving. One of the focus missionaries will present on freedom plans, which is a very intentional, concrete way to choose to grow in this kind of integral way through the principles that we've been talking about of relationship being the foundation of everything. So I've reprint, reprinted, these were charts and, and diagrams and previous handouts, but just wanted to go over Again, very briefly, what we've looked at with the seven deadly wounds, the identity beliefs or lies that associate with those, and then the seven signs of healing, which uh, we experience as a way to kind of address those wounds, that pain, and particularly those lies that swirl around that pain. So abandonment is something that, you know, these these are things that can happen to us. You know, we suffer some trauma, or we commit some sin, and we, we feel the consequences of it, and then there is this feeling, just pain, that then gives rise to a thought or a belief. So in the, in the case of abandonment, you feel abandoned. And it could be something from your childhood where you, like, somebody was supposed to pick you up at school and they didn't, and that was scary, and there was no repair. Like, the person that picked you up didn't repair that and, like, talk you through that. You just kind of, like, oh, my gosh. And the belief that happened there was, I am all alone and no one cares or understands. So you could feel abandoned, and then the one who accidentally forgot you, like people make mistakes, could repair it and communicate to you in a way that you can receive in your heart. Oh, I'm not all alone. I felt really scared right there. I felt all alone, and I didn't know how to get home, and somebody needed to pick me up. But then they were like, hey, I'll always be there, and then you're, you're, you can always just ask for help. You, know, you can go back into the school and you know, like teaching kids. But if you're just like, oh, my gosh, something might happen where – I don't know what I'm doing, I don't know where I am, and no one's there to take care of me. That, that's like a wound of abandonment. And then what happens from those wounds of abandonment a lot of times is the inner vow. And that's on the next page, we'll go over again. It's like, I'll never be in a place where I don't know how to get home or something, something like that. I'm, I'm never going to pl- put myself in a position to ever feel that scared again. And so you just like imprison yourself in these false boundaries. Like, I can't ever do that because that's too scary. Or, and it's just so hard to get yourself to do something or you, you keep reacting anytime somebody invites you to do something you don't feel comfortable with because 
there's this feeling, this wound of abandonment deep down there somewhere uh, where you fundamentally believe like you're actually by yourself. You can't ask for help. No one cares. See how that would work? Like if, in, unless you get to that seventh, that, that sign of healing, which is, and that's, that's the kid who got left at school, but then the parent saw the child in his distress or her distress and made sure they were able to communicate the closeness, the nearness, so that they felt connected and understood. That they, that wasn't like, you just need to get over it. Come on, sometimes people get left at school and you just got to figure it, like, that's not a big deal, you know? If you had your pain minimized or something, it might even be an extra wound. But like, your, your feelings are not valid. Like, it's another abandonment. So these things can be very subtle and it's not blaming people who hurt us or anything like that to say like, oh, that's the reason I sin or anything because I had a bad childhood or what, you know, we're not just trying to like, delve into our psyche to find like who to blame for why we're so messed up it's just acknowledging the reality that like whoa there's some sometimes like my heart gets hit with something where i'm like really i don't know why i'm reacting like this like i just don't want to do that or i feel really irritated by that or upset maybe there's some abandonment there something with the rejection like we might feel rejected we put ourselves out there we get we we you know express ourselves in a way that feels natural to us but then we we feel embarrassed. Somebody's like, no, that's not okay. Uh, you're weird. Or, you know, there's some feeling that's like, ugh, that's not welcome. And then the, the belief that might happen. And again, these beliefs are lies. These are not true things, but they, they can be things that we believe because of the pain of the experience. I am not loved, wanted, or desired. I am not wanted. Maybe like the person I could become or the role that I, I should play in my family or in my school or my community, that might be wanted or loved, but not me, not who I actually am. So I have to hide myself or lie or deceive or, or become somebody different, you know. I have to look different. I have to sound different. A sign of healing, if you felt rejected, would be accepted and valued. Imagine a kid getting bullied at school because he's fat or short or different color skin or something, something that just makes them stand out and they're getting picked on for that and so they feel like oh there's something wrong with me I'm not loved wanted or desired and I'll never be like a, a parent is the God figure in their life there the unconditional acceptance that can pursue the child's heart notice that they're not feeling so well they're a little subdued a little quiet at home like when they were really little they would just like play and express themselves and make art and now they're just like doubting themselves at every turn and thinking so the parent pursues it and and makes an effort, <clears throat> can't create the experience for the child, but in, invite them into, even at that age, an encounter where they can feel accepted and valued for who they are. And not just lie to them and be like, oh no, it's, it's just, you know, just ignore it, or their, their opinion doesn't matter. Like they're feeling something really deep and painful and it's creating in them this well-worn script that I'm not loved, I'm not good, people don't like me. And it's going to express itself if it's not addressed that, no, you are valued. You, who you are, is accepted. Um, people may reject you. The world may reject you. God knows that's going to happen. The object of the game is not to never have trauma, never to have pain. It's that you're able to go with, with that pain to the relationship that tells you the truth about who you are, that you are accepted, valued, connected, understood. Okay, I'm not going to go through all seven of these in deep detail, but just listen to the wound and listen to the lie that often comes around the wound. So fear, maybe you got really scared at some point. And the 
the lie is, I am afraid. If I trust, I will, hurt or, I will be hurt or die. Notice, sometimes you do feel afraid. So is it a lie, I am afraid? I think the, the difference here and why Dr. Schuess put it this way is the difference is between I feel afraid and I am afraid. You ever felt, felt fear and you're just like, oh my gosh, I'm never going to stop feeling afraid. And then that makes you even more afraid and you start to really get in your head and like the fear just kind of snowballs. Sometimes I would have that. It's public speaking where you're like, I'm afraid and that's going to make my voice sound nervous. And then I'm going to like really mess up and that's making me even more afraid. And the fear is making me afraid. Feeling fear is fine. People get afraid when they do stuff like public speaking or, or try a new thing that they've never tried before in front of other people. You know, that's not, that doesn't mean there's something wrong with you. But the lie, when you feel that fear, something just stokes a, a, a painful, scary experience in your heart. Is it like, I'm just an afraid person and I can't do hard things. You know? I'm just going to stay away from that stuff and, and never do it. If I trust, I'll die. Shame. Experience shame. The lie around that might be, I am bad, I'm dirty, shameful, stupid, worthless, powerless. Maybe you had an experience where you felt totally powerless. I can't change it. I'm too small, too weak. Hopelessness. Something happened where you just felt so empty and so hopeless, like the future was, you know, you maybe lost a loved one or you had this goal in your life that you... There's, there's a movie, uh, Little Miss Sunshine, kind of a weird movie, but it's, it's pretty beautiful in its way. There's a teenage kid who's really like, just doesn't have a lot of social skills and relationships, but he has this dream of being a fighter pilot. That's like his one thing that's keeping him going through school. And there's a scene in the movie where they're doing like some magic eye thing in a book in the van, and he can't do it. He can't see the difference because he's red, green, colorblind. And he never knew that he was colorblind. And he has this realization and and the mom or somebody goes, that means you can't be a pilot. And it's like this, this scene, he runs out of the van and just like weeps in the field where they're, they're on this long road trip. You just feel like, how hopeless would that feel? Like the thing that got you out of bed in the morning, now it's just taken away. So you, you feel that things will never get better. I want to die. The sign of healing for that, the place where you go with that hopelessness, is a relationship where you feel hopeful and encouraged. Again, that doesn't paper over. It's not like, oh, come on, cheer up. You'll, have, you'll find another goal. It's like, I can go with this deep, deep pain to someone who understands it, and they will, that relationship will give me hope and encouragement. Last one is confusion. It's happened to lots of little kids. They just are confused. Like, what's going on? I don't know. There's a loud noise. There's a car crash. I was at the park, and two cars hit each other, and now people are, adults are swearing. I'm just confused. Like, am I safe? Um, I don't know what's going on. And... Uh, that lie might be, I don't understand what's happening. Like the, the world is just this chaotic place and bad things can just happen and I can never count on anything to be the way it was or the way I, I understand it to be. Clearly there are things in the world that I don't understand. But I do have resources at my disposal to, to understand them. You know, This could happen like when you have an, an assignment due or something like that. The teacher gives you an assignment and you're just like, I don't even know where to start. You know, And all of a sudden you feel this overwhelmed feeling and it just gets you like to do all sorts of procrastination and self-harming behavior because you just feel confused. Like, I don't even know what to do. Uh, maybe I should just quit school. Maybe I should just leave and like start a new life. Like the, the little, little everyday challenge can create this like huge response. Maybe there's some wound of, of confusion there that like you really believe deep down, like 
other people who have it together and you have, I have no idea what's going on. I'm just pretending. So much for wounds and lies. It can be kind of intense to, to think about these things. But the so seven signs of healing, that's, that's in Jesus. We can go to him with this pain. This is the point of last talk on redemptive suffering. To not just medicate it, escape from it, deny that it's happening, but go to him with it and experience it in and with him so that it becomes something sacred, a place of intimacy. And then, then that place of confusion becomes a place of clarity and enlightenment. Or the place of hopelessness becomes a place of hope and encouragement. Like, I was in my darkest hour, and I brought it to Jesus, and here I am. What can take my hope away now? Okay, and then to review this, this tree of life that Dr. Schuess goes over, uses this analogy throughout the book, but talk about the roots being your security in your relationship of unconditional love, the trunk being your maturity in your identity as a beloved son or daughter, and then the leaves or the fruit of the tree is your purity, is your good fruits, your good actions, your virtues. So security, let's just start with the bottom up. I will let God love me in the places where I feel most vulnerable and dependent. That's these places, this is where we experience the seven signs of healing. Connected and understood replaces abandonment. Pure and worthy, this attitude, that I, this feeling or experience I have of being pure and worthy replaces my shame. My safety, my security replaces my fear. Being empowered and liberated replaces, my, replaces that experience of powerlessness. <clears throat> Being accepted and valued replaces rejection. Hopeful and encouraged replaces hopelessness. And understanding and enlightenment replace confusion. This is your growth. This analogy is the tree is you growing into who you are. Okay, like think of an acorn. That's an oak tree, but not yet. But it has everything in it to become an oak tree. So you, I was just praying this morning with Jeremiah, before I knit you together in your mother's womb, I knew you. Who you are is an idea in God's heart. And that's something that he's growing. But it, you grow not through leaving the nest and like finding yourself and achieving great things and then coming back to God and be like, look at what I became. It's in remaining in God. That's why Jesus says at the last supper, remain in my love. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. That's in this relationship. This is the primary place where growth happens. Most of it is invisible, just like a tree. Most of that growth is, is underground. And that's where the nutrition and where the stability is coming from. And then you see it manifest in this identity. So these, these are your, your virtues, your maturity. Like, wow, that's a, that's a mature person because they react to, to life and its, and its pains not by immature ways, but through mature ways, the, the virtuous ways. So patience overcomes the seven, the seven deadly sins are overcome by the seven lively virtues. Patience overcomes anger. Humility overcomes pride. Chastity overcomes lust. Diligence overcomes sloth. Abstinence overcomes gluttony. Kindness overcomes envy. Liberality overcomes greed. And again, just to review, these, you don't start with these virtues like, oh, I'm, I'm struggling with lust. I'm going to just try to be more chaste. Of course, you should avoid near occasions of sin and uh, practice consciously, intentionally, more chaste habits. But if you're acting out in lust because of a wound of abandonment or rejection, chances are the more you try and then the more this unmet need keeps insisting that you meet it through this familiar addictive habit, 
um, the more ashamed you're going to feel and the more you're going to rely on the habit to medicate the shame and you get stuck in this. That's the stuckness. So it's in bringing the wound to the Lord where this, this um, growth in virtue will naturally happen and it will be much more stable, much more solid than if you're just like, oh man, I'm, hold, I'm being more chaste this week. I'm doing really good. Instead of just like, wow, no, I don't need to prove. I don't need to fantasize to feel accepted or loved or understood or clear. I can just be myself with the Lord. That's where my strength is coming from. And then the purity, the fruits of the Holy Spirit, peace, patience, faithfulness, love, gentleness, goodness, kindness, joy, self-control. Imagine those things just being natural to you, as natural as it is for a tree to get its leaves back in the spring. Like the tree is not having to try really hard to prove that it's still alive, it's still doing great. I've got it all together. The tree just, the seasons come and it just naturally grows and then it bears fruit and then the seeds come out and it makes more trees and that's the saints. That's what God's intention is for us, for the kingdom to grow like a mustard seed, naturally and organically. So in the last figure, just to, to review, I kind of already referenced it, but that, that wound that is at the core, oftentimes, of a belief or a lie, which then gives rise to an inner vow, like I'm never going to depend on anyone, or I'm, I'm just always going to take care of myself, or I'm never going to do anything I don't understand, or never try anything new. These vows that manifest themselves in, in deadly sins. Think back for a moment and reflect on the anatomy of a wound. Do you remember the three concentric circles? What were your core wounds? Can you write out the identity beliefs associated with them? <clears throat> what judgments toward yourself, others, and God did you discover? Were you able to see where you made inner vows to protect yourself? Each of these barriers can interfere with us receiving the healing we desire and God desires for us. The following example illustrates... If you have a wound of abandonment, it is very likely that you have a deeply held belief that no one hears or understands you. My experience suggests that deep down you may also believe that God has abandoned you and does not hear your prayers. If that is the case, you may pray this, you may pray half-heartedly or give up when you meet the first sign of resistance or delay. All the while, you may rationalize this to yourself with thoughts such as maybe Jesus doesn't want to heal this. But if you listen carefully to the Holy Spirit, you will find that these are deceptions lurking in the darkness discouraging you from praying. Suppose in your experience of abandonment you made an inner vow. I will not look to anyone else for help. I will take care of myself. With this silent resolution, perhaps formed in your heart at a young age, you may not even think about praying. Instead, you may just try to solve things on your own, trying to cope with whatever ails you. I regularly encounter these barriers in prayer, in myself and when praying for others. A typical example of this occurred several years ago when I was praying with a woman who had been conceived out of wedlock. She did not know her father and later found out her mother had been raped. The daughter, married with children of her own, harbored major wounds of rejection and abandonment her entire life. She believed she was a mistake and dirty because of how she was conceived. She never felt loved or wanted, but always felt as if she had ruined her mother's life and thus everyone else's. These identity lies kept her bound in shame. When we asked the Holy Spirit to show us the roots underlying her wounds, she was shown a vision in her imagination of her mother being raped. As she looked on as an objective observer, her attention was drawn up to heaven where she saw a dove representing the Holy Spirit come down from heaven and bring life to her mother's womb. Instantly, she realized that even though she was unplanned by her mother and conceived by her father's sin, she was ultimately alive because of God's choice and power. For the first time in her life, she believed in her heart that she was a gift from the Lord and giver of life. 
The Holy Spirit then showed her many things about their purpose, destiny, and the future of her family in heaven. At the end of the prayer experience, we went back and tested whether she still believed the identity lies that had plagued her throughout her life. In examining, we've discovered that these lies around her conception were completely gone. Seven signs of healing shown in the table above, which can be used as a way of testing the validity of her inner healing prayer, were evident in her life, replacing the identity lies and wounds. It's just a really beautiful story. That's an example, I would say, of a core wound, like a wound that something that happened to you in your life or, or a story that was told to you about you that, that kind of reached to the core of your identity and became a narrative of like how you understand yourself. She understood herself to be a mistake and dirty, a result of a sin. Her father raped her mother. And that was just a, a story she told about herself that made her like just live in shame, basically. She might have done good things and felt proud of herself at certain times, but deeply down, she was like, I'm bad. I, I shouldn't exist. I ruined my mom's life. I was a mistake. But you see how that, that she brought that pain? She was able not to just deny it and pretend it doesn't exist, and, but actually be living from it all the time, trying to prove she's not dirty, trying to prove she, she, that it was okay that I was born even though I ruined your life. Like, still, I hope I, I hope I give you some joy, you know, like this frantic need for approval that it might manifest itself in. Instead, to just bring it... I feel like a piece of garbage, like a mistake that ruined people's lives. And the only thing I brought was inconvenience and burdens. And to, to have this experience with, with the Holy Spirit, this image that spoke right to her heart, like this bad thing was happening. My mom was being raped. And yet God was there. And then the, and the Holy Spirit came down. And he, he made me. He wanted me to exist. I'm a gift. That's the truth, that you're a gift. And it was in, in that courage for her doing that. And then with, with Dr. Schutz, a fellow Christian praying with her, that now she feels connected, understood, valued, accepted, loved. It doesn't, it's not magic, and it doesn't mean that she's not going to struggle with if she has habits of sin that have developed over the years. Like, but there's something that's happened at the root of, of her relationship that's going to manifest now in a new freedom to practice the virtue. Quote on the, on the next page. Just some context, this is a, a story, and I would recommend now, after wrapping up these talks, like if, if these have spoken to you, to just read the book, uh, Be Healed by Dr. Schutz. It's a very good book. But one of the uh, people that he talks about in, in this book, he changes his name, obviously. He refers to him as John. He struggled with, for, for many years with the sin of lust, uh, so pornography addiction, masturbation. and uh, He was married, and I believe he was married, but it was really like, costing him a lot of grief and his wife a lot of grief. And in praying with John, he, they came back to some memories from his childhood, of feeling like when his uh, little sister was born, feeling a lot of rejection from his mother and just kind of like hating his sister and hating his mother and feeling very unloved and, and like he didn't matter. So it's a deep wound of rejection that he never really even realized was there. And he didn't really go searching for it. It was just like in talking about and praying with uh, Dr. Schutz, the Lord kind of showed them to him like, oh, here, here's some, some stuff, some pain that's just like totally unresolved. Like I, I haven't really thought about that in a long time, but yeah, even as I talk about it, there's still a lot of pain there. He was able to bring it to the Lord and have a, have a deep experience of, of healing. So he talks about this as, a, as an example. Starting at the bottom of the tree, notice the seven signs of healing next to the word security. By overcoming the deep pain and burdensome shame he carried for much of his life, John 
struggled with, a, with lust rooted in a wound of rejection, now enjoys a freedom that he never believed possible. Since Jesus uprooted rejection from his heart, he now believes that he is loved and accepted. Whereas isolation and abandonment once dominated his life and fueled his addictions, he now largely feels connected and understood. Genuinely hopeful about his future, he is empowered with the freedom to make good choices. He is able to trust and receive the love of his family and friends, and this love provides a deeper sense of security than he ever remembers. With this newfound security, John's growth and maturity accelerated tremendously. I want to just underline that. John's growth and maturity accelerated tremendously from this place of being loved and accepted in his, in his place of deepest vulnerability and shame. Now his maturity was able to grow. It's like all of a sudden like the, the season changed, and now it's just like, whew. The life is back in his life. Since his healing experience, uh, experiences, he finds it much easier to practice virtuous living. He is discovering the joy of being dependent on the Father for his comfort and strength, thus replacing the ungodly self-reliance that was formed out of his wounds and inner vows. His growth in chastity has given him a deep desire to remain pure. He is more aware than when the tempter brings to mind lustful images, which no longer hook into his wounds and send him into a cycle of addiction. He is able to bring these temptations into the light and does not feel compelled to act them out. Wow, could you imagine this? This confidence of a son or a daughter to just... The seducer, the evil one, is, is tempting you. He knows your triggers. He knows how to hook you. And instead of trying to solve the, trying to pull the hook out yourself and then blaming yourself every time you get pulled, okay, the, he's throwing hooks at me, God. God like, can you help me? And, and just bringing it into the light. Just in doing that and just having that trust, the temptation falls away because now I feel connected. I don't need that, that fantasy in order to feel okay. Like, I, look, I'm, I belong to God. He's always here for me. He's able to bring these temptations into the light <clears throat> and does not feel compelled to act them out. John is also noticing that his desires are changing and becoming more wholesome. It's another great sign of healing. His desires are changing and becoming more wholesome as he experiences the freedom of chastity. He is diligent in maintaining his spiritual life. Once grasping for pleasure and happiness, he is now generous with his time and possessions. He has learned to live in the Father's providence with joy. See the trunk of the tree where lively virtues replace deadly sins. And just this last quote, I think this is toward the end of, his, end of his book, but I think just puts the question right to us. Do you want to be healed? Jesus asked that question, didn't he? To the uh, guy by the pool of Bethesda. Do you want to be healed? Do you desire the kind of freedom that John now enjoys? Is there any area of your life that you believe disqualifies you from receiving God's grace or healing? If so, your God is not big enough and Jesus Christ is not real enough. In one of my favorite passages of scripture, we are given this amazing promise from God. Instead of your shame, you will have a double portion of honor, Isaiah 61, 7. Think of the most shameful or hopeless area of your life, past or present. That is the place you most need a savior to set you free. That same area in your life, when it is healed, will bring God the greatest glory in your life. For many of you, this will also be the very place that God will equip you to administer healing to others. Do you believe what I'm saying? I know this to be true from my own personal experience and from John's. His shame was an area of his life where he needed, most needed Jesus. Because of his healing encounters with Jesus around those issues, God is now glorified in his life through those same wounds and areas of shame. Last thing before we go into the, um, into the testimony. Just the questions for reflection. These, of course, you'll do on your own time in, in the small groups. But I just wanted to read through a couple of them just to hopefully spark some of your reflection. So are there any identity lies that speak to you and are hard to fight off? These are the lies from the first page. 
I'm not, I'm all alone, I'm not loved, I'm afraid, I'm bad, I can't change, etc. Any of those that speak to your heart, and can you trace those beliefs back to any wounding experiences? Just thinking about that. Do you experience what you would consider immature reactions to everyday challenges? Examples of immature reactions. Shutting down, <clears throat> compulsive or addictive behaviors, overreacting, passive aggression, emotional manipulation, attention-seeking. These would be immature reactions to, to everyday challenges. What are these reactions for you, and why do you think you act this way? I wanted to just give one example that, uh, for me, kind of helps elucidate what I'm trying to get at with this question. And it's from the book Christian Lovren's Daughter. I started reading this book uh, a few months ago. And it's by Sigurd Unset, a female author, and she writes a lot of stories. She's Norwegian, and she writes a lot of stories from like 1400s Norway, which is really cool. It's like not a period or place that you often think of in history. Uh, and the main character is a girl, <clears throat> a young girl. Well, she starts out as a girl and grows into a woman. It's a trilogy of her whole life, basically. And um, one of the first scenes in the book when she's really little, it's the first time that she ever leaves her her, the valley that she was born in. You know, it's like a very mountainous part of the world. And her father is a landowner, and he goes off to different places to do trading and meetings and stuff with the other landowners in the region. And even goes to <clears throat> Oslo, which is where the cathedral is, and the king and all that. But she's never been able to go with him. She always has to stay home with the mom. And it's the first time that she's going to get to leave the valley, and her father is taking her with him. And she's all excited and she can't believe that she's getting, getting to do this. And she is like preparing her clothes and packing her bag. And it's going to be this journey that she gets to go with, with her father and all his men to some nearby village. But for her, it's like the, the biggest adventure she's ever been on. Maybe she's like eight or nine years old. And she's flitting about the house and her mom's helping her get ready. And her mom says to her, are you so happy then, Kristen, to be going so far away from me and for such a long time, asked her mother. Kristen felt both sad and crestfallen, and she wished that her mother had not said such a thing. I'm going to read that again. Her, her daughter is, is overjoyed that she's going to get to be with her father, and get, go away from the house, this new confidence, this new adventure. And the mom just feels sad about that. Are you so happy then, Kristen, to be going so far away from me? And for such a long time? Kristen felt both sad and crestfallen, and she wished that her mother had not said such a thing. It's such a small little interaction, such a subtle little thing. But just imagine what's going on in the heart of the mother that the joy of her child is making her sad. And then on top of that, she can't help herself but to say something that she knows will hurt her child's feelings, make her feel ashamed that she's happy about going on this trip. Like, oh, you're hurting me by being happy. It's so subtle, right? But like, she, the mother is immature. That's a very immature thing to do. Like, it might hurt, as a, as a mother, it might be sad to be like, my little girl's growing up, first trip away, I'm going to be sad, and gosh, she's so happy, she's not even thinking of me, but that's, she's just a kid, and I'm, I'm an adult, and it's, I didn't get in this to be appreciated, okay, but she's having that conversation in her heart with God, being like, this kind of, this is a hard part of being a mother, is letting go, instead of trying to do something to emotionally manipulate a nine-year-old to love you more, and then What's happening in the nine-year-old there? She feels sad, crestfallen, wish my mom hadn't said that. Now she's maybe, how is she, what is she believing about herself now? That my feelings hurt people. I shouldn't express myself. If I'm happy, that might make somebody sad. It's like, maybe she's confused. Maybe she feels abandoned, rejected, whatever. 
there's another example, but I think that's, that's sufficient. But just to think about those things, and not to be hard on yourself, but to just be brutally honest. Like, when am I being immature? And there's probably some reason for that. You know? And it's probably not going to help just to beat myself up and like, I should be more mature. Especially when you compare yourself to other people you perceive to be more mature than you. You're like, oh man, I'll never be like that. And then it gives more into the identity lies. Something wrong with me. I'm not lovable. I can't change. So the rest would, I think, be more, more or less self-explanatory. Now I want to invite up Peter Simon, Molina, who has been so generous as to come here today to visit us and give us his testimony. Let's begin in a prayer. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to come down and be with us as we pray. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Let us pray, O God, who have taught the hearts of the faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit, grant that in the same spirit we may be truly wise and ever rejoice in his consolation. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. May the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Nice to meet you guys. Very likely, you probably don't know me. I'm a bit of an outsider. Father Connor has graced me with the, this opportunity to be able to share my testimony with you guys. So I just want to also share with you guys one minute short biography of who I am. Born and raised in Southern California, just one of many SoCal guys that are just raiding the Midwest, you know. <laughs> Spent eight years in Seattle, went there for undergrad over at the University of Washington, where I was very involved with the Catholic Newman Center over there headed by the Dominicans. And in Seattle, I became a lay Dominican. I am a life-professed lay Dominican of the Western province and have been for the last seven to eight years. And it's been a very, very good blessing to me. After that, I applied and was graced with an acceptance to med school. And I moved here to start over at the Cook County Hospital, just a few hospitals down. And currently, I live down in High Park, where I'm fairly active in the young adult grad community over at the University of Chicago. So I want to let everyone know that maybe not everyone here will share my experience or be able to really take something from it directly. But if you may know someone or if you come across someone in the future, I believe that that is where Hopefully, God willing, the fruits of my testimony can bear fruit within you guys. In college, in Seattle, I was invited by my good friend at the time. She said, hey, would you like to pray rosary in the chapel after uh, we were helping prepare for a retreat? And I said, yeah, that sounds great. You're, I mean, she was one of my closest friends. I love being able to pray with her. We were there, and pray the rosary, and she sat down in silence. I was like, what's up? And she told me, Peter Simon, I like you. And if you feel that it is uh, something that you would like, I would like to pursue a relationship. Um, I thought, wow, that's, I was not expecting that. <laughs> um, and as I paused there, staring at the tabernacle, I was reminded, this is my sophomore year, I was reminded of 
a conference that I went to just a few weeks prior. And I ended up telling her, I like you too. You are one of my closest friends and I very much fell in love with how you are actively making me want to be a holier person. And then I told her, well, this is weird for me also because you're also the first girl I have ever had these feelings for. And I told her straight up, didn't want to hide this. I told her as far as I could tell, I am gay. I have same-sex attraction. I have never been attracted to someone of the opposite sex in that way. And when I said that, we, we hugged, we cried, we prayed a little bit more, and we began to discern marriage with one another. And it was a very, very fruitful and good four years of my life. We were pretty much engaged. Uh, we were emotionally engaged, if that makes sense. I had the ring. I knew exactly what I was gonna do, how I was gonna do it. But my friends, my spiritual director, God in my prayers eventually helped me realize that this may not be the right thing, at least in this time. So uh, I'm gonna rewind a little bit more uh, to high school and what my prayer life or faith was like before college. Cause I was like, oh, this seemingly paradoxical experience of same-sex attraction and growing up Catholic, being in a very Catholic family, what is that like? You know, is that just a life of suffering? Is that a life of constant compartmentalization of these feelings of everything that I can understand as true? So I was the epitome of a nominal Catholic. I grew up Catholic. My parents were able to establish a very solid, a very good foundation of my faith. But unfortunately, I didn't have that good of catechesis growing up. So I didn't, I just straight up didn't know majority of what the faith act truly entails within it. Something changed when I, I decided to go through confirmation. My parents provided me the, that, that choice because confirmation is my willingness to want to receive this indelible mark that will never leave me whether I like it or not. And it was at the retreat, it was at that night of my confirmation that I was graced with the understanding that I am good. Just those three simple words, I am good. And that's what I left home thinking. Um, so I started college in Seattle. I learned from the Dominicans there. I essentially was recatechized and learned so much more about my faith than I could even think was possible. And for the first time, I had holy God-centered friendships. And these are people that were actively wanting me to be a holier person and strived for my sainthood. And I was then, uh, I was blessed to be able to be sent as a delegate from my university to go to a good old Sikh conference. I went to the Sikh 2015 conference in Nashville, Tennessee. And that, that was a place that essentially changed my life. For the better. Before going, I was very much still, like up till that point, I just compartmentalized this part of my life, you know? Never really thought of it. The closest thing that I had was when Proposition 8 was a thing in California, whether to 
ban or disallow uh, gay marriages. And uh, we had a very civil uh, discussion about it uh, in high school. And I went back home and I talked about it with my parents and I was scared to death and I never wanted to do it again. <laughs> I was like, oh wow, okay, so I, this is something I just, I can't, I can't live by and I shouldn't even acknowledge in a way. But it was at the Sikh conference um, where before going, I sat in the airplane or I sat at the airport and I prayed to God, Lord, if there's one thing, one thing that I learned from this apparently cool conference, I just want to know what the heck am I supposed to do with this part of my life that I've never given a cent or a dollar to? What, what does it mean for me? And any sort of greater understanding that you can provide. And at the Sikh conference, just like any conference or any Sikh uh, thing, I learned so much. It was amazing. I, I already thought that there is so much catechesis that I've learned, there can't possibly be anything more that I learn. I was very much wrong. <laughs> I was, I looked in the calendar and I saw good old Father Mike Schmitz was giving a talk on same-sex attraction and the Catholic Church. Me, and my mind, I was like, that's crazy. People actually talk about that? Like, I, th I thought that, you know, in the catechism, they're just, we're supposed to just ignore this, how does, how does it say, the disorder, this disordered desire. I am inherently disordered. Why, why would anyone want to talk about this in front of 10,000 impressionable college students. And I realized that my understanding of it was wrong, all wrong. How the beauty of our faith and the beauty of being able to live out this vocation, my vocation personally, I feel called to a chaste, celibate life, and how there's so much good in it. How this overwhelming sense of loneliness and sense of worthlessness as father connor was mentioning in his talk i i really felt unworthy of love felt that i was inherently wasn't wanted or desired by anyone just given my sexual orientation um especially within the church within the broader community and the church as a whole and then came the was it like second or third night of Sikh, which is when adoration happened. Sikh 2015 had the fantastic talk given by Father Mike Schmitz, the hour that will change your life. Some people uh, may have heard of it. I was able to hear it firsthand. And me and all my classmates were just bawling, as, as one does. And immediately afterwards came uh, adoration. And during adoration, I offered my life, I offered my thoughts to God, and I just came to him saying, I, I learned, I believe, as much as I can tell, what you want me to, what you wanted me to learn here at this conference. But Lord, this is, this is tough. This is tough. I... At this time, I still was very hesitant. I was very much on the border. I was like, I, I mean, I, I hear it, but why would, why would I want to actively 
shift my entire life to abide by the church, abide by this God that I wasn't even all in on. So essentially I asked him, why should I do this? And in the silence of adoration, I heard the Lord speak to my heart. It was to the point that I, I could vividly hear his voice. And the way I describe it to my friends, the way that I've described it to my other, other folks that I shared my testimony with, this can only have been a speck of a foretaste of what the disciples must have felt at Pentecost with how much love, joy that I felt at that moment, I heard the Lord speak to me, Peter Simon, you will do these things because you know that I love you and you know that I love you. And at that, at that moment, I, as simple or as radical as it can sound, my life was just, my life was just completely changed. I decided at that moment where I believe, I don't know who it's originally from. I know Bishop Robert Barron has said this before, but what truly makes or truly marks the beginnings of a Christian is when they realize that the world doesn't revolve around them and that their life revolves around God instead and that God should be the center of your life. And that is pretty much what I would I had that radical acceptance of at that moment. So at adoration, I was, uh, as I do, uh, just bawling, just crying my eyes out with my other 11 classmates around me. They started just like handing me tissues and like, PS, he's, he's having a Jesus moment. We gotta, we gotta be with him. And I, I, had the, I had the gall to ask the Lord another question. I asked him, I know why I should do this. I want to do this. If I may, how can I do this? Because what you've asked from me and what I have now decided to do, that is a hard, that's a hard life. <laughs> a hard life, not only am I a, already a minority of today's society as a Catholic, I am a minority of a already small minority. I am a gay dude, I, I experienced same-sex attraction. Notice I, I personally switched between the two terms. I, I needed some guidance. And what he, what the Lord provided me was not, not words no longer. If I never hear him audibly speaking to me ever again, like I, I would be totally fine. That one occurrence was enough to radically change my heart already. I received an image of me and my really good friends at our Newman Center, just having a really, really good holy time. At that, I, I didn't really understand it, but I started bawling. Um, and it wasn't until later on, honestly, with only within this last five years or so, I realized it was the community, it's friendships, it's me being able to express love and receive love in a way that I thought was unobtainable for me. And I, as a Dominican, I, I love the, the great writers. St. Augustine wrote uh, in his Confessions, you move us to delight in praising you, for you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And that is, 
that line, our hearts are restless until they rest in you. That is essentially what I took from there. And I decided to just live my life as holy, hopefully as holy as I possibly could. And so to fast forward again, just two weeks later, my best friend at the time asking me if she'd like to begin discerning marriage together. Uh, we had an amazing four years. However, as I mentioned, uh, God had other plans. And I really experienced that unworthiness of love, appreciation, desire. And then it was when I found this community called Eden Invitation. Uh, Eden Invitation, if you guys haven't heard, uh, is essentially a peer-led apostolate official by the USCCB. If you go to the website, it's right next to Courage. Um, it's essentially a more recent version of Courage. Uh, that's just, that's another time, another talk. But it was through this community and through my conversations that I've had that was really able to further me wanting to um, live out my faith and live out what it means to be Catholic and to also experience same-sex desires. Also notice that I, I personally don't like the term struggle with same-sex attraction. Like, especially if you're talking to someone, because you're, you're assuming that they're struggling. You're assuming that there's that conflict, that they're inherently positioned away from God. So I personally, and I think it's good and prudent as a, as a means of seeing it as merely an experience. And I am very open about it, as you could probably tell with me giving my testimony. I love being able to share my testimony and my experiences with others. If you or anyone you know has these similar experiences, or even if you just have questions yourself of like, this is a lot, I have no idea what to take from it, but I have more questions, please feel free to reach out. I would love to be able to talk to any and all of you guys. And I'd like to just end with uh, the prayer that St. Teresa of Calcutta would pray daily with her um, missionaries of charity. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Dear Jesus, help me to spread thy fragrance everywhere I go. Flood my soul with thy spirit and thy life. Take hold and possess my whole being so utterly that all my life may only be a radiance of yours. Shine through me and be so within me that every soul I come in contact with may feel thy presence in my soul. Let them look up and see no, see no longer me, but only you, Jesus. Stay with me and then I shall begin to shine as you shine, so to shine as to be a light to others. The light, O oh Jesus, will be all from you. None of it will be mine. It will be yours, shining on others through me. Let me thus praise you the way you love best by radiating on those around me. Let me thus preach you without preaching, not by my words, but by my example, by the catching force of the sympathetic influence of what I do, by the evident fullness of the love that my heart bears to you. Amen. St. Teresa of Calcutta, pray for us. In the name of Father, Son, Holy Spirit.